We're in a series called Together, uh, based on the kind of church that we want to be. We're in the book of Acts again, Acts chapter 11. And for some of us, probably the chapter of Acts 11 is becoming quite well known now. We may know it even off by heart. But we're looking at the church in Antioch and seeing some of the values of the church that we aspire to be. And so far in this series, we've mainly been focusing on things that are very uncontroversial amongst Bible-believing Christians. So the values we've been considering until now are things that people who believe the Bible will pretty much all agree, yeah, that's really important for our kind of church. So we will all agree, I think, around the world, almost any church that believes the Bible will say, yep, grace, really important, discipleship, mission, community. These things are all things we're pursuing. Mercy, generosity, that's, that's who we are. And those things that we've looked at so far have been part of this church actually since the beginning. They've always been part of our story. Just, uh, just this last week, I came across an extraordinary quotation that really amazed me. And I, I don't know if others in the church had come across it, but I certainly hadn't. A quotation from the great Charles Spurgeon about this church. And I didn't realize that Spurgeon had on record said anything about this church. I, I knew that it had been planted from his ministry. Charles Spurgeon, if you don't know, this is a, a picture of him, great beard, um, but also a, an extraordinarily gifted pastor. And many would say, I mean, often he's referred to as the Prince of Preachers, just one of the church history's greatest preachers, fierce opponent of slavery, built a huge church in, uh, up in Elephant and Castle as well. It's a remarkable man. And that he had said on record about this church in 1884, he said this, parent churches have built mission halls or village chapels at a distance from themselves to supply destitute localities with the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The Catford Hill Church has put up a hall at Bell Green, Lower Sydenham, and a right noble work is being done therein. The original church is itself young and not without its burdens, but it has proved its vitality and generosity by this gallant effort. I thought, wow, that's Charles Spurgeon speaking about this church. And actually in there, you could already see a commitment to mercy and generosity and the gospel and building community, even in what he says about this church 140 years ago. So those things of all, all the values we've looked at so far are fundamental to who we are and always have been. Today, we are going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit and we're going to see a value that I guess amongst Bible-believing Christians has been, sadly, more contested. So all Christians believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but what the Holy Spirit does and how he ministers among us and what gifts he gives and what we should expect are more things now upon which brothers and sisters do actually disagree. So the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, the miraculous power of the Spirit and what we should expect and pursue and how we should use prophecy, languages, tongues, if you call them that, or how we should expect these things to function in the church. All of that is a bit more up for grabs and debated in the contemporary church. And so I wanted to speak into that and really lay out where we stand as a church on these things. It's quite important not to overstate the difference, I think. I do want to say that up front, that although there are churches whose practice of spiritual gifts would differ from ours, I don't want to overstate the difference either. I, I think it's, you sometimes hear people say, that church over there doesn't really believe in the Holy Spirit, or they don't welcome the Holy You think, no, 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 that's actually, we've got to be very careful not to speak like that, because it's very likely that that church over there we're talking about has members who stand every Sunday and declare, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. They, their theology and Trinitarian worship and their songs and prayers might in, in fact involve the Holy Spirit more than mine or yours. So I don't want to overstate it. As it's, we could slander them if we're not careful to say, oh no, not, they don't do the Spirit. You think, oh no, that, let's not talk like that. Having said that, there are clearly significant differences 
between a church that expects the book of Acts to be a, a normal. So I'll give you an example. I'm on a pastor's, I run a pastor's training course. And a woman on our course two weeks ago was telling a story about how somebody had said to her in her local community, she said, have you heard? Our new vicar believes in the book of Acts. And she was like, what do you mean? I, of course a vicar would believe it. What are you talking about? And yet we, there are obviously communities of Christians in this country for whom the idea that the book of Acts is the kind of thing that could happen now, and in fact we should pursue as much as possible now, that's seen as not just controversial, but really quite odd. And people might think, well, the idea that Acts would happen today, that miraculous prison breaks and angels appearing and tongues and prophecy and miracles and healings, and that those things would happen and the church should pursue those things today, that's seen as being quite fringy in parts of the confessing church. So to cut to the last page, at Kings, we believe that. We believe the book of Acts is for today. We believe in the book of Acts. We believe that the churches in the book of Acts are in many ways a model for us, that we should aspire to the level of spiritual power and experience and breakthrough and giftedness that they saw. And even if there is a gap sometimes between them and us, that's not a gap to make peace with and say, oh, well, that's just because of this. That's something to say we want to, best we best as, as it's within our power, we want to pursue that gap to be smaller. We want to see more and more of God's power, more of his kingdom breaking in power today. And that's basically the case I want to make today. And so that we would pursue powerful experiences of the Spirit and miracles and heavenly languages, sometimes called tongues, supernatural guidance, prophecy, healing, angels, the whole caboodle, right? That's what we believe as a church. And I want to try and convince you that that's biblical. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of God. Those last three verses were from Acts chapter 13 at the start, but Acts chapter 12 in the middle is not about Antioch, so that's why I jumped from one to the other. I'm going to try and make the biblical case today for the charismatic gifts, if you like, in three stages. I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to say, here's what the Holy Spirit does in Antioch. And then secondly, say, here's why some people think he doesn't do all of those things today. And then thirdly, say, here's why we think he does. 
do all of those things today. That's the, that's the shape of what I want to bring to us today. The, firstly, I want to look at what the Holy Spirit does in Antioch, right? So the Acts 11 bit of the story is told in four paragraphs, really, and you, because you now know Acts 11, if you've been around a few weeks, you now know Acts 11 pretty well, and we see they are really told in four little paragraphs, and each of these paragraphs gives us a different aspect of the Spirit's work in and through the church, you might say. So in the first paragraph, verses 19 to 21, we meet evangelists. Now, the word's not used, but gospel preachers, people who go out into the community and preach the gospel. We meet evangelists. And the, the, the kind of concluding line to that paragraph is, and many turn to the Lord. That's what happens at the end. And the second one, we meet apostles. Barnabas is sent out. The Greek word behind that is ex apostello. Apostle, apostello means I, I send. And so he's sent out, and he later in Acts is referred to as an apostle. He's sent by the Jerusalem church to Antioch, and he's described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And then again, that paragraph finishes, a great number of people turn to God, or are added to the Lord. And then in the third paragraph, verses 25 to 26, we meet pastor teachers. Barnabas goes, well, a lot of people here, we better teach them. And he goes to Tarsus, gets Saul, who's the best teacher he knows, and he brings, not a bad, you know, this is the Apostle Paul, right? He's not a bad, bad person to have in your teaching team, I suspect. And he goes and gets Saul and brings him. And many people are taught. And the conclusion of that paragraph is, and this is when people were first called Christians. And then in the fourth paragraph, we meet prophets. And in verses 27 to 30, a man called Agabus arrives and he prophesies a great famine in Jerusalem, which actually happens under Emperor Claudius. And the church responds with this crazy gift of generosity. And so all four paragraphs, we meet a different aspect of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church. You have evangelists and then apostles and then pastors and teachers and then prophets. And then in the little Acts 13 section I read at the end, you have all four of those gifts at work again. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and then the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, who were later called apostles, and they get, are then sent off to go and preach the gospel, which is effectively evangelism. And that's not the only time that we find these four gr gifts grouped together, apostles, prophets, pastors and teachers, evangelists. They get grouped together again in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul does, you, you, effectively, Paul, the same guy who we've just been reading about, that he writes this way and he says, yeah, the, the, the risen Christ has given gifts to his church to strengthen us so that we might become mature and equipped and united and humble and all these things. And those gifts that he's given are like apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. So it looks like this is a kind of standard-ish way of referring to the variety of gifts given by the risen Christ to strengthen and equip the church for maturity and for ministry. I was thinking about this last week, you know, we have a staff prayer meeting each Tuesday and you know, at nine o'clock we get together and we share a bit back from Sunday, give some feedback and encouragement and we worship together and pray together. And just, it was fascinating, just last Tuesday, I was noticing as we went around the circle, hearing what people say and do in that setting, that there was, I was, I was hearing one story about one of our pastors who, the, uh, someone had been looking for him on the Sunday morning, and I was saying, where is he, what's he up to? And he couldn't find him, and his wife didn't know where he was either, and then they eventually found him out in the street at the bus stop sharing the gospel with some teenagers. And I thought, it's just, it, it's just a little story that got, got dropped in. I thought, yeah, that's the heart of the evangelist at work. And then we began to pray, 
And if I'm, my memory serves, the first prayer that came out in that sort of prayer time after the song had finished was by another one of our pastors just saying, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd and you protect and look after. And I thought, yeah, that's the heart of the pastor speaking in that group. And then as we go around, we hear from Steve, who's, about, who's just sharing what he's about to go and do on a, a mission trip across to uh, he's going across to America and spending some time with some pastors, which is where he is right now, and helping strengthen an apostolic network. He wants to connect people from different nations. And I thought, that's the apostolic gift at work. And then we heard some feedback from our group of songwriters who'd had their songwriters weekend. And they had been, again, wanting to express the heart of God to move in power in the church. And they'd had a time of spending, prophesying with one another together and seeking God together. We heard back from our Ministry to the Poor team, our Jericho Road project. And again, they were sharing their heart for the poor. And as I looked around the room, I thought, even in this little church, right? I mean, it's a big church, but even in this staff team, we've got basically versions of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, all around the circle, all expressing gifts that God's given them to strengthen and equip the whole church. And there are many other gifts, right? This is not the only ones, right? There's the gift of healing Paul talks about and practices, the gift of miracles, the gift of languages or tongues, the gift of interpreting languages or tongues, the gift of discerning spirits, telling, is this the work of God or the work of darkness in this, in this situation? But these four gifts in particular that we see functioning at Antioch, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, they all involve speech and they all equip the church for what it's called to do in the world. And they all see the church in Antioch strengthened both in numbers and in like maturity. Barnabas is full of the spirit. The church in Antioch is full of the spirit. The, the Holy Spirit speaks and they send people out. And that involves a lot of spiritual gifts functioning in and around this church. So, if we were to just look at this passage and say, what is the Holy Spirit doing in Antioch? One of the main things we'd notice is that he is providing gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to strengthen the church for the ministry that they have ahead of them. Now, for many Christians in the world and in our city, there is a big gap between the church in Antioch and the church today. And so a lot of, I've got a lot of friends like this who are believers, who are, they love Jesus, they're passionate for the Lord. And they would say, actually, I think that the pastoral and teaching and evangelistic gifts continue today, but the apostolic and prophetic ones don't. Yeah, but a load of people who I know who would say that, and many of them are friends of mine. And that view, sorry to use a heavy theological term, but that view is sometimes called cessationism, as in the idea that those gifts have ceased. The apostolic, prophetic, and miraculous gifts have stopped in the, with the death of the apostles, basically. And many people who hold it are godly, loving, humble, zealous people who may share Jesus with other people more than me and who may pray more fervently than I do. Many of them, I'm sure, do. So I want to, for a moment, just consider, so why do people believe that? And that's not, we'll see in a moment, that's not what we as a church believe. It's not what I believe. But it is what a bunch of faithful Christians believe and want to look at why is that? And I think there are two main reasons. One of them is theological, and the other is practical. The theological reason why people would say, I think those gifts have stopped, the apostolic, prophetic, and often they'd say the sign gifts, miracles, healings, tongues, those have stopped with the apostles, is that they would connect those gifts with the foundational witness of the apostles to Christ as, and his resurrection in the first generation of the church. And they would say that those gifts were given for a season to bear witness to the preaching of the risen Christ. And they would say apostles are people who witness to the resurrection of Christ. 
and New Testament prophets bear witness to, they reveal God's word to the church. And the other gifts, healing, miracles, languages, and so on, they bear witness and underscore that witness of apostles and prophets. And that's really what those gifts are all there to do, is to reveal God's word and to declare Christ as risen and all that flows from that. But now, with the death of the apostles and the completion of the Bible, we don't have individual witnesses to the resurrection going around now saying, I've seen Jesus. And that's true, we don't. And they say, well, we don't have individual speakers of God's infallible word today. And I, I, th I personally think, yeah, that's true, we don't. We have scripture instead. And so they would say, we've got scripture, so we don't need any extras. We don't need apostles, prophets in, in addition to that, because we've got the Bible. We don't need anything more than that when it comes to the spiritual gifts that are mentioned here. That's the theological reason they'd give. The practical reason they'd give is, I think we've got to hear as well, which is, they was, and many of my friends would say, charismatic churches are often not discerning or wise in our practice of the gifts, and we can easily end up putting modern revelations, modern prophecy, modern words or whatever, alongside scripture in authority or value. That, that sometimes charismatic churches are not wise in the way we practice the gifts. And we can elevate modern ideas to the same status as scripture. And I think we need to own that and admit that, maybe not, I hope not here, but that that is something that happens. And in fact, it quite frequently happens. I think if you've been around churches that believe roughly what I'm talking about today, you will have probably come across this in some way. You may have been a member of a church like that. You may have participated in it, I don't know. And I think there are countless examples of ministries and churches and individuals who have taught and practiced things that are manifestly unbiblical because they believe that the Spirit told them to and have come up with all sorts of nonsense. Now, sometimes that nonsense might be harmless nonsense, and sometimes it is. I think of a woman who came when I was a pastor in Eastbourne and came and said, I've just been at a revival in another town in Britain um, and I've got, I received a glory cloth while I was there and I now want to wave it over the church. Can I come to the microphone and share about it? I was like, that's just, no, we're not going to do that. By all means, pray in faith for people, ask for God to meet with them. We're not going to wave glory cloths. And, and I just don't think that's instructive. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think it's very helpful. Um, I think of another guy, I often laugh about this, but he, he, he was sharing contributions so regularly that one of the pastors eventually sat, sat him, was, spoke to him. I remember being in the gents' toilets and, he's, and one of the pastors said to him, listen, I think we've, we've heard so many of these now, we just need to limit it to maybe once a month because there's just so many things you're saying like this on Sundays. And he was, <laughs> the gents are just going for a wee, and he just turns around and just sort of said, yes, yes, okay. Or as the Spirit leads, and the elders had to, had to say to him, no, no, I'm not saying as the Spirit leads, I'm saying no more than one a month. That's what the, that's what the Spirit through me is telling you. We just, we've got to rein it in. And sometimes you get all sorts of things like that where you think, they may not be bad, it's just not very helpful. But there are examples where it's more severe than that, where people end up, I've been in meetings where people have shared that the Holy Spirit has just revealed to them what this text, which the church has been debating for couple of thousand years, but the church has just revealed, the Spirit's just revealed to me what this passage means. And I'm going to tell you now what it is. And you think, that's not, that's not wise. In fact, that's going to lead people into error quite easily. Sometimes it can be evangelistically a problem. I and mean, some of you have seen this, the way that spiritual gifts are handled on Christian television sometimes can bear, can bear a bad witness about the gospel. People, unbelievers, watch it. You may have seen it and thought, man, if that's what Christians believe, I'm not having this. Sometimes it can be pastorally, de pastorally devastating. 
One guy I know had somebody come up to him with a prophetic word. He said, this person said, the son that your wife is carrying is going to die when he's born. And it was completely untrue. Didn't happen. The son's still alive now, 30 years later. But for this guy, he just said, that's the kind of thing that makes it very hard to pursue spiritual gifts because people do things like that and how harmful and destructive that can be. It can be even worse. Some of you may be old enough to remember the cult meeting that happened in around Jim Jones, where they all ended up committing mass suicide in Guyana. Well, a friend of a friend was in that cult for a while. And my friend asked him, why is it that you left when you did before it got that bad? And he said, ah, it was because they ran a meeting that said, come and hear the man who has all nine spiritual gifts. And he said, yeah, this is just getting too far now. And he left. And then a couple of years later, they'd all killed themselves. And he thought, that's charismatic Christianity just gone totally off the rails. And some of us have witnessed things like this, especially, but not entirely, through churches associated with sometimes called the prosperity gospel. You may have seen it and thought, I don't want a piece of that. And I think our brothers and sisters are right to be concerned about it. But in the end, that's not a reason not to pursue the gifts. It's a reason to pursue the gifts wisely and biblically. There are lots of things, lots of horror stories. You've got them too, maybe. But that's not a reason to say we won't do the gifts. That's a reason to say if and as we pursue the gifts, we must do it biblically. We must do it with discernment and wisdom and not with foolishness and credulity and unbiblical, no breaks, no care to what's going on. And in the end, the reason why biblically we believe we should pursue all the Holy Spirit's gifts, the reason why I disagree with my brothers and sisters who say that's not that was just then, the reason why I think you should believe in prophecy and languages and interpretation and healing and discerning spirits and the whole lot is because of scripture. It's because I think that's what the Bible says. So go back to Antioch for a moment. My cessationist friends and my friends who think, no, that was just for them, would say that we don't have apostles because they're eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And we don't have prophets because they bring infallible revelation. But I'd say in this passage, Barnabas is described later in, in, this, in, in Acts, Barnabas is described as an apostle, and he almost certainly didn't witness the resurrection. Right? He, he's, only, he's not called an apostle when we first meet him. He only becomes one later when he's sent by the church. We might call him an apostle with a little a. He's sent out to found and strengthen churches, not to write the Bible and witness to the resurrection. And similarly, we've got Agabus, this guy Agabus we've just met. He's a prophet. But his prophecy isn't written down and studied to be part of scripture. We don't even have his words, right? This is not a prophet like Isaiah and Jeremiah who declares these long texts and then they're written down and added to the Bible. This is a guy who's speaking, it would seem, relatively spontaneous revelation given to him for the church at that time to respond in a particular way, but not to be studied as part of the text of scripture. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll find there is not a single text in the whole New Testament that talks about the end of prophecy, languages, healing, or miracles after the death of the apostles or the completion of the Bible. There's no passage that says that. There's no passage anywhere you can read and say, oh yeah, but when by the time the apostle John dies or Paul or whoever it is, this will all stop and the, ch and the nature of the gifts will change. Nobody ever says that. It's actually quite the opposite. So have a look at a few of these passages. 1 Corinthians 14.1, zealously desire spiritual gifts especially prophecy. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He doesn't say, do this for a few years and then it'll change, do something else. He says, no, pursue them zealously, right? 1 Corinthians 14, 39, zealously desire to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues. 
Romans 12 verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. And then he goes on. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, just test everything, hold fast to what's good. So again and again, the apostles, and Paul in particular, are urging the church, pursue the gifts, use the gifts, run after them, don't despise them, run after them, just make sure you use them wisely. And therefore, I think it's important for us as looking and thinking, well, why do we believe in the pursuit of the gifts? I think Because I think the New Testament does. It's not just not because I had an experience and went, oh, this has made me think a bit differently. It's because I genuinely believe the New Testament teaches over and over again that we should pursue spiritual gifts. And by the grace of God, that's how I ended up as a pastor. It was because somebody effectively brought a prophetic word like this and I, I knew God was speaking to me. They revealed things about me they couldn't possibly have known. And I thought, yeah, I think this is what God calls me to do. It's actually how we ended up having our third child. It's a story I've probably told on another occasion. Just somebody who had no idea of the situation, prophesied such power with such power into our situation. There is one passage in the New Testament that mentions the gifts coming to an end. It's in the most well-known chapter in the whole Bible. You may have had it read at your own wedding. And you know what it says will happen? It says the gifts will cease when Jesus returns and we see him face to face. So the gifts will end, but they will end when Jesus returns and we see him face to face. Here's what it says. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part but when completeness comes, what's in part disappears. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Paul is talking about the return of Christ as the moment when these gifts end. And I think rather than saying these gifts ended with the death of the last apostle, we're much better off saying, no, these continue through the church age. They will end one day, but for now they are to be pursued. And so I believe, and we as a church believe, that the miraculous gifts continue, not just theoretically, but in practice. And we want to pursue them both personally and corporately to see God's spirit at work in the church through apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers, languages, healings, miracles, casting out demons and global mission to the glory of God. That's what we believe. I began this message by quoting Charles Spurgeon. And I'd, I'd like to close by quoting him again. He's often highlighted as a guy who didn't believe in the miraculous gifts. And he, it's true that he wouldn't have called what he did prophecy. He, I don't think he would have. He, he had a, it was a more complex position than that. But I want you to listen to something that he said in his autobiography and let it stir faith in you that that's what even the place where this church was planted from is founded on the idea that God does this kind of thing in the church. This is Spurgeon uh, writing in his autobiography. I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul or else he couldn't have described me so exactly. And not only so, but I've known many instances in which the thoughts of men have been revealed from the pulpit. I've sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbours with their elbow because they got a smart hit and they've been heard to say when they were going out, the preacher told us just what we said to one another when we went in at the door. That's the kind of church we want to be so that others may say, you know what, God is really among you. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wondrous gift of your Holy Spirit and his power at work within the church. We ask that you would help us to pursue all the gifts that you have to give us and to pursue them with wisdom that the Lord Jesus might be glorified and that we might grow in maturity and as a church come to re represent all that you would have us become. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.